0: Thank Ronzani, and welcome to Tales of Baroque. Each episode, you'll join me and my esteemed guests on another fabulous dive into the Baroque world. It's characters, composers, politics, places, popes, kings and queens. Today, I'm joined once again by Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology at the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music. And in our discussion, we're going to be talking about higher angels, the shining stars of Handel's London stage, and the glorious music you're going to hear featuring two stars of the Australian stage, soprano Sarah McLiver and countertenor Russell Harcourt. So wherever you are, Sit back, relax, as Alan and I take you on this journey through Handelian Opera, featuring some of the superstars of the Baroque world. Thank you, Alan, for joining me today. Uh, It's a wonderful topic that we've got ahead of us. I mean, opera is always fantastic, isn't it?
1: Sure is, yeah, and it's uh, lovely to be back talking about this. We've got a bit of a Handel theme going on at the
0: moment. We do indeed, and what has crept in somehow into this Handelian uh, pasticcio is an aria by uh, Karl-Heinrich Graun that's not very known.
1: Yes, indeed. So we've got a program of all uh, Handel except this one aria by Graun who was uh, a slightly younger contemporary of, of Handel's.
0: Last time we spoke, Alan, we explored a little bit about Handel as a younger man and composer travelling through Italy and the things that may have influenced his later musical output. Perhaps you could remind us of some of the important singers and stars of the stage that Handel would have met or may have met during that uh, sojourn yeah so as we were talking about last time he spent uh the
1: early part of his career as when he was in his 20s uh in italy kind of learning his craft at the it was kind of the home of music really at the time and uh during that time he was patronized by some of the wealthiest aristocrats in Rome particularly, but Mm -hmm. also in Florence and Venice. Um, And yes, he certainly met the leading musicians of the day. Um, The singers he worked with are mostly not people who are well-known today, though he did uh, have... The really useful experience, I think, of working with the soprano Margherita Durastanti, who also worked for Prince Ruspoli when Handel was working for him in Rome, and uh, she ended up starring in his Agrippina, the first opera he had done in Venice, mm. and uh, so uh, he, so he had some connections certainly with with notable singers of the day. It was even rumored that he'd had an affair with the soprano Vittoria Tanquini. <laughs> uh, but uh, otherwise, most of the, the names of the singers are not so well-known today. But he also encountered some of the leading composers of the day, um, particularly Arcangelo Corelli, the, the famous um, violinist and composer of concertos and uh, trio sonatas. Uh, Domenico Scarlatti, who was exactly the same age as Bach and uh, Handel, born in 1685, who had a, a notable keyboard duel with <laughs> with Handel. Yes. Of harpsichord off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, uh, and the composer I'm working on at the moment Antonio Caldara as mm. well as another of the kind
0: of major people who uh, Handel encountered in Italy during that time. My question now takes us away from Italy and towards London. Obviously Handel hadn't arrived in London just yet um, at the time we're talking about, but uh, what was happening in London at that time? What sort of music or opera or staged vocal music was happening in, in, in the capital?
1: Yeah, so uh, Handel arrived in London in 1710, and over the decade or so, or so before that, there was a certain amount of Italian music happening in London. In fact, there had been Italian music and Italian singers heard since the latter part of the 17th century, but never any full operas. It was only during the uh, first decade of the 18th century, 17, uh, from about 1705 to 1710, that they started experimenting with uh, whole operas, sung in a kind of of a mixture of English and Italian uh, by various composers – A particular piece by Bononcini called Camilla was very successful um, with a mixture of English singers and Italian singers. The Italian singers sang in Italian and the English singers (laughs) sang in English. uh, So as long as you had the storyline written down, you could kind of follow what was going on. Uh, But before that, there hadn't been any kind of opera that was sung all the way through in Mm. the way that Italian opera was. Um, In Italian opera, of course, you have the set piece arias, the, the big songs, and in between them, ...the dialogue goes on in recitative... ...so it's a kind of speech song... ...which is accompanied by the harpsichord and and cello... ...continuo group... Um, ...but essentially the whole thing is musical... ...there's no speech in it... ...whereas in English theatre... ...they were still very much uh, in the territory of spoken uh, drama... ...as the main thing... ...and so when you had music... ...it was incidental music in a spoken play... ...and sometimes a whole uh, sung piece... ...that would come between the acts of a spoken drama... Um, and uh, they were quite clear that this was a deliberate thing, that this was kind of the English taste and they were not that interested in um, getting into something that was rather different.
0: Now, with Handel, let's uh, skip along to Handel arriving in London, Uh, he had very clear intentions. You know, the the subsequent output that we can see and and revel in today uh, are obviously a testament to that. He was planning on making it, making it as an impresario, building his own opera company, you know, bringing this Italian taste to London audiences... The question that sprung to mind for me was who were the stars that enabled this? Handel obviously had some renown as a composer, uh, but, but who were the stars that also aided Handel to conquer these British audiences in London especially?
1: Mm. Uh, when Handel arrived in 1710, he was still a young man. Remember, he was born in 1685, so he's only 25-ish when he arrives. And uh, so he's not there immediately to set up a whole new opera company and all of that. Um, he's on a contract to do a particular, to, to do a show, uh, which he does and it was but it was enormously successful because over that previous five years the kind of experiments that had been going on and all those people who'd done the grand tour and come back and said, wow, I went to the opera in Venice and it was fantastic um, they were kind of primed for something new and mm. so when Handel put on Rinaldo, uh, it was an enormous success and that really kind of established him there so that he then came back the following season and effectively never left after that. But the question of who the singers were who, who kind of facilitated this is really important because uh, at the time opera really was all about the singers. Um, when you were setting out to, to put on a new show, if it, the impresario would uh, be kind of uh, engaged to, to put on a new opera and they would uh, first of all look for the librettist. It would have to be somebody to write the, the word book uh, or to adapt an existing one and that would usually be a notable uh, literary person. Uh, once you've got the words then uh, you the next thing is not to get the music the next thing is to hire the best available singers <laughs> you go and get the the most famous most uh you
0: can the Essentially the most famous people you can afford. Yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds very similar to actually how things still function today. <laughs> In a way, except that you don't
1: have the music yet. No, no. So then you hire the composer and the composer's job is to write music for those singers, mm. right, for those individual people. And so those individuals, of course, are enormously important then. Um Handel was sent off to uh, Italy to hire singers for the company as it was set up and uh, the funny thing is that he didn't actually go to Italy. He went to Dresden in Germany but he was onto something because there was a visiting Italian opera company there and essentially what he did was to offer them more money and and poach uh, the best of the singers who were there. He's very entrepreneurial, this (laughs) Handel. He is, yes. He was a smart operator and not backward in coming forward, as it were. Uh, So um, the first person that he hired there was his old friend uh, Margarita Durastanti, who he'd worked with in Rome previously. Um, He hired another three people, but they uh, didn't come for the first season, but Durastanti did. Uh, And successively after that, um, he hired some of the most high-profile singers uh, who were around in Italy, uh, particularly the uh, Alto Castrato Senesino, who created many of his his greatest roles, including Caesar in in Julius Caesar. Mm. Uh, Another, um, Castrato Bernacchi, the Sopranos... uh, Cuzzoni and uh, Faustino Bordoni, who were two of the, the absolute top stars of the day. Antonio Montagnano, the bass, and Bottasini, the tenor. Um, there was another bass, Boschi, as well, who he brought over. Montagnano is notable because he uh, had an extraordinarily wide range. There are parts written for him which go over two and a half octaves. He could go right from the C below the bass, st- uh, bass clef, um, up to tenor's top A. Wow. <laughs> that's quite remarkable music and, of course, not many people can sing it
0: today. Still would be very remarkable.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and the tenor, Borosini, who had um, who had been uh, very successful in, in uh, Italy and um, uh, throughout Europe before that. The uh, thing about that that's interesting is that uh, you'll recall that Mostly the leading roles in operas were for the high voices. It was for female sopranos and for castrati. Uh, But there were a few significant roles that were written for tenors and basses. Not many, but um, because he had these really fantastic singers available, he could then write
0: a few important roles for tenor and for bass. Now, when you mentioned Ronaldo just before, Alan, you reminded me of a fabulous recording that the Brandenburg did with the very much celebrated countertenor Graham Pushy, where he recorded as part of a whole suite of Handelian arias Venti Turbini from Rinaldo and the earlier version of Rinaldo because there are indeed two versions. Mm-hmm. Um, how does his voice then compare with that of a castrato of the, of, of the time? What, what's the fundamental difference there? The singers who mostly sing the roles
1: that were written for castrati uh, now are countertenors like uh, Graham, who's of course the very eminent Australian countertenor, uh, and Russell who, of course, we'll hear singing this repertoire in in this coming program, and uh, the way that they sing is using the falsetto part of the voice. So essentially, it's the same kind of uh, mechanism that we hear in popular music. The Bee Gees used it a lot in stand Alive." it Alive. Stay it alive. <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. Um, it's essentially that that same kind of vocal me- mechanism. But mm. uh, and so the the vocal core, vocal folds uh, inside the larynx, are configured in a different way from the way that they are for um, kind of uh, natural male voice singing, and that allows you to access this very high part of the range. And uh, so someone who's very well trained to do that can produce a very powerful lyrical sound. Mm. Um, it's not the same as a castrato sound, and of course not the same as a woman's voice, um, And but it allows us to, to hear a male singer performing the the roles that were written written for
0: those male stars. So let's have a listen to Graham Pushy, Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra performing Venti Turbini from Rinaldo. Such a brilliant high sound, isn't it, Alan? Uh,
1: Yeah, and... Countertenors sing much higher than an ordinary tenor or or baritone can, Um, but they also come in different flavours, as it were. There are different qualities of voice and different ranges. So uh, somebody like Graham is essentially an alto singer primarily, uh, whereas a few, relatively few, countertenors can sing in the uh, soprano range right up to the the top of the voice. And as we've heard, uh, some notable Australian singers, uh, like David Hanson, for example, can sing a blazing top
0: C, which uh, not many countertenors can do. In terms of Russell Harcourt then, have you had the pleasure of seeing uh, Russell sing live before? I have, though not
1: much for some time. I actually remember uh, him as a student at the Conservatorium years ago and I uh, had the great pleasure of teaching him in a couple of classes. Uh, and uh, so I've I've heard him sing a couple of times in opera performances since and it's wonderful to hear how his voice has developed. And, uh, of course, as uh, singers mature and get more experience, uh, all of that goes into what they bring to a performance. And so now it's a, just a lovely voice
0: and a very musical singer. Now, having essentially big-name singer, as we've talked about, can be vital to the success of a production. Uh, what sort of significance uh, is there then in the importing of these this overseas talent for Handel in London at the time? Was this one of the major draw cards to his productions? It certainly was. In a way, you, you actually couldn't put on these Italian operas
1: without importing the top Italian singers. There were a few English singers who gradually made uh, careers. Anastasia Robinson was one of them. Uh, John Beard, the tenor who worked for Handel later on, they're mostly in oratorios, but in in opera it really had to be the top Italian stars um, to make it work.
0: And how would they have been perceived at the time? The first Italian castrato
1: who really was notable in London was a man called Nicolini, uh, who was noted as a a great actor as well as a great singer, and so that really made an impression that he was not only this kind of interesting, unusual kind of voice that they were not familiar with, um, but the fact that he was such a good actor really impressed the English because they were their the, the land of Shakespeare and, you know, yes. really, um, drama was such an important thing. Um, but bringing in these uh, spectacular singers who could sing in this, trained in this particular way that they only did in Italy, um, meant that you could have a kind of music that was just not possible to put on mm. otherwise.
2: Um,
0: and indeed, Nicolini was uh, playing the part of Ronaldo in the original production. Right.
1: Yeah. And so uh, that's a, uh, a nice example of how this kind of uh, – so Nicolini had been to London before Handel, but then uh, he's able to kind of step in to this new show. And uh, so he's a known name, uh, also a big star, and uh, that allows uh, – that's one of the things that makes this such a successful production, I think. Um, we have But we have all sorts of other comments. And there are a few kind of notable ones um, – the uh, the soprano Francesca Cuzzoni, who was uh, one of the, the really big names, um, there's a rec- an account of a, a man calling out in the middle of the show, um, "Damn me, she has a nest of nightingales in her belly." <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very English thing to shout. Out, yes, so it, it, <laughs> indeed. But I can imagine just how impressive that singing would have been to someone who would had never heard it before. That's right, yes.
1: It was something completely new. And uh, unless you'd been on the Grand Tour and, you know, had heard these people uh, in uh, in Italy or perhaps in Germany or somewhere on the way, it was something that was hard to imagine that people could sing like this. Mm. This. It's a a new kind of virtuosity which had not really been done before. One way of characterising it is that throughout the 17th century, the ideal of instrumental playing had been try and make your instrument sound like a voice. And to some extent, that was still the case. a violinists tried to be sound as lyrical as a voice in their playing. But the other side of it was that, particularly in the late 17th into the early 18th century, we have a an outpouring of virtuosity in instrumental playing. So this is the period of Vivaldi's violin concertos and so on, and singers start to be required to imitate the kinds of things that violins can do, mm-hmm. and that's really new. Uh, there had been a, a, certain, a kind of, inst- of uh, vocal virtuosity um, throughout the 17th century, particularly in Italian music, but not with the kind of wide range and the fast runs and enormous leaps and so forth, uh, which is what made uh, particularly these sopranos like Cuzzone and Faustina and, uh, and the great Castrati famous.
0: We've talked about semi-opera and some of the other things that the English audiences were interested in. How about Australian audiences and what we're going to hear this year, essentially, in Higher Angels? So maybe take us through some of those different genres and those different types of areas that we're we're going to hear on the program.
1: Yeah, the music that we're going to hear is all of a similar kind of style and uh, It's um, written, of course, by the same composer and uh, mostly in Italian, but not all. Um, But it's actually not all from operas. There are several different uh, kinds of works represented here. Uh, One thing that you'll notice in the program notes is talking about Oreste, which is a pasticcio. Now, pasticcio is a kind of opera, but it's one that's, rather than being composed all in one go by the composer, is put together out of pre-existing pieces. It seems kind of surprising to us now that you would just take a whole lot of arias from different operas and stick them in together.
0: Well, also contrary to many copyright laws, but
1: (laughs) yes. That's right, but that didn't apply at the time. And uh, one of the things to bear in mind is that um, operas – up to a point were kind of formulaic. There was a way in which they're done in the same way that now if we go to see an action movie, we know what an action movie is and we expect what kind of storyline it's going to be and the sorts of stunts and things that you get. Well, an opera you know, had a set kind of structure in the same way. And the structure was that you had uh, contrasting range of arias, fast and slow and so forth. And they tended to be ones that expressed particular kinds of emotions. So you had arias of rage, of happiness, of joy, uh, of sadness and so on. And so up to a point you can kind of substitute different ones in. Uh, you may need to change the words to fit the storyline and so on, but the music uh, of one opera would work perfectly well in the context of another. And even if you have music by different composers, they're all working within the same kind of style. So mm-hmm. it's not generally going to kind of jar if you go from a piece by Handel to one by Porpora or one by Hasse or something written about the same time. So that's what a pasticcio is. And so we have one aria from Oreste, which is a pasticcio, but actually the
0: aria belongs to an earlier opera by um, by Handel, um, Richard the First, King of England. And indeed, I have a beautiful recording that was actually broadcast by the ABC live uh, featuring uh, the countertenor Philip Yuruski who came out and performed with the Brandenburg in indeed. 2013. So why don't we listen to Philip Yuruski, Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra performing Agitato da Fiere Tempeste from Oreste. that going on in the uh, background Alan. You, you made a reference to nightingales before and in fact the sort of vocal style that we're hearing here is reminiscent of birdsong almost I mean uh, it might not be the most appropriate thing to sort of mention but for me when I hear this singing it's it's leaping it's jumping, it's joyous and, and it does b- become reminiscent of birdsong in a way.
1: Yeah, in a sense it, it is. It, it, it has that kind of uh, flexibility and so forth that we associate with some birdsong that you think wow, that's, how can that Go so fast yes know, so, yeah uh, it's it's so thrilling um, and one other the things to say about this aria is that it's uh one uh, that is on a particular kind of theme you know i was saying before that uh that arias tended to pick up on a particular emotional state and in order to do that the poet often wrote a text which referenced uh something in nature which could be used as a simile and so this one is in uh, a common category of um storm arias Uh, Very often the singer compares themselves to a ship tossed at sea in a storm and uh, um, I'm like a ship tossed at sea, what am I going to do? I can't make up my mind between love and duty and you know all those sorts of things. So Mm. here the words are tossed by fierce storms. If the helmsman can see his star, he feels it all will be well. I hope in the, even in the midst of deadly anger to bring calm to this soul, which placated will then be happy. So you can see built into that are the two contrasting uh, affects, uh, kind of emotional states of being tossed by the storm, being agitated and so forth, and wishing for calm and peace. Mm. And so that allows the composer to to kind of build in those um, uh, emotional states into the
0: music and i think indeed the the word that you mentioned affect this is inseparable from baroque repertoire because it really was the intention of the composer to to sort of propose this affect and 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 essentially show the audience exactly what emotional state the characters were going through that's right and it's one of the things that really distinguishes baroque music from that of the
1: later 18th century uh, well let's say i mean baroque is a problematic term in itself because uh, the, it tends to cover such a wide range of different music that really isn't very comparable. But let's say uh, in Italian music, um, the difference between the music of the early 18th century and the late 18th century, the style of Mozart, say, uh, you can immediately tell when you hear it. It's it's quite different sort of music. And one of the things that makes it different is that in the first half of the 18th century, the kind of aesthetic ideal is that every piece should express one individual emotion and do it really intensely. The whole purpose is to make you feel that emotion as strong strongly as you can whereas in the second half of the 18th century the ascetic is more in the direction of contrasting things within the same piece so you can you can leap from joy to sadness or or whatever within a few bars sometimes in a mozart aria Uh, and uh, so that's one of the things that that uh, makes this music so distinctive
2: let's
0: just take a quick break it's you Bach, and the universe this July, journey into an inner world of mystery and magnificence with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra's celestial concert series, Bach's Universe. Johann Sebastian Bach's most intimate and transcendent music will be on full display in a theatrical pastiture of his solo and chamber works by Paul Dyer, as well as a must-see Brandenburg performance of the unforgettable, Orchestral Suite No. 3 in D major. For this special All Bach event and joining the orchestra for his Australian debut, radiant German Baroque violinist Jonas Schenderlein will be performing this genius composer's violin concerto in E major. Bach's Universe opens on July 15 at Melbourne Recital Centre and will run through until July 30 at City Recital Hall, Sydney. Book your ticket or tell a friend today. Now let's get back to Higher Angels. Now, apart from pastichios, were there any other particular genres of, of staged performance that you wanted to mention?
1: Yes, indeed. Um, we have an aria from uh, Apollo E. Daphne, Um, Apollo and Daphne, which is a dramatic cantata. It's almost like a mini opera, but it would have been unstaged. So it's sort of halfway between a chamber cantata, which was normally just for one singer and continuo, um, and a whole opera. So almost kind of the way you might think of oratorio being halfway between uh, a small scale and a Thing and, and an opera um, so a dramatic cantata has more than one character unlike a, a, a usual cantata and it's also accompanied by orchestra where an ordinary chamber cantata would just be with continuo harpsichord um, so uh, that's why I guess the music sounds operatic
0: but it's uh, actually a, a slightly different kind of genre so this is soprano Anna Prohaska performing Felicissima Quest Alma with Jonathan Cohen's group Arcangelo on the album Enchanted Forest. just bring it down a bit and i forgot to mention when we were talking about venti turbini but the oboe part reminded me of that just how prominent some of the wind instruments are in these aries and these fabulous solos that for example for the bassoon in venti turbini and then here for the oboe it's just brilliant listening isn't it
1: It is. And this is also something that's fairly new in this period. Uh, The instruments that we think of now as being the flute, oboe, bassoon, and so on, uh, they had really been developed around the French court only in the 1680s and 90s. So they're still quite new tech, really, in this period. Uh, So introducing uh, oboes had been around the longest, um, but uh, sometimes having solos on the flute and so forth, this is also almost kind of a special effect thing uh, when you have this accompanying uh, an aria. so here, yeah, beautiful duet essentially between the oboe and the voice. Mm. stuff and there is one other uh genre that's represented uh, of vocal music in this program and that's uh, a secular oratorio the choice of hercules um not to be confused with his other hercules piece <laughs> and you'll find that this is fairly common thing that there are pieces with similar kinds of titles uh, and on similar storylines but um this one is an english concert piece called the choice of hercules and we have a wonderful uh, beautiful aria, the only one that's in english on the program
0: Now, uh, as you've mentioned, uh, this is the only aria in English and what more fitting than to actually choose a British uh, singer to be able to sing it. And the fabulous countertenor Yeston Davies is responsible for the voice on this track, Uh, Yet Can I Hear That Dulcet Lay From The Choice Of Hercules. That going on a bit in the background. It is just so divine. Um, maybe audiences will recall a very similar sounding aria being performed as part of the English Baroque with Circa program. Of course, not quite the same. Different text from a different opera. Do you know which one I'm talking about, Alan? <laughs> I'm trying to remember, and it's not coming to me. What is it? Gentle Morpheus from Alceste.
1: Of course. <laughs> Yeah, and it is so distinctively Handel, isn't it? You
0: couldn't hear that and think it was any other composer. Oh, look, I just think that I could listen to this for for days, but we'll have to move on uh, because we have another brilliant composer on this program. Now, he is the only one that's made this all Handelian affair. We've mentioned him earlier, Carl Heinrich Graun. Look, I have a confession to make, Alan. Um, I must admit that I had not heard or seen much of Karl-Heinrich Graun's music before. Indeed, when I saw the surname, I immediately thought of a fabulous concerto for Viola de Gumba in G Major that I had heard Lixania Fernandez perform uh, when she came to play with the Brandenburg in Australia in 2018. But I actually had the wrong Graun, didn't I? <laughs>
1: That's right, yep. That one was actually his brother.
0: Yes, his older brother, just slightly older, one year older, Johann Johann Gottlieb Graun. Uh, Perhaps you could enlighten me to help avoid the mix-up a little bit further and tell us a little bit about Karl Heinrich Graun and his life.
1: Okay, so it is actually easy to mix them up because their careers were very much parallel. In fact, there were three brothers who were all musicians. Interesting that they didn't come from a particularly musical family. Their father was a tax collector in a small town in Germany, but they were all well-educated. And the eldest brother, August Friedrich, um, had a a respectable local career as a musician in Meuseburg, which is near Leipzig. Uh, Then the the second brother, Johann Gottlieb, he's the one who wrote the violins, Gamba Concerto, uh, was a famous violinist. He'd studied with Piesendel, who was the leader of the famous orchestra in Dresden, uh, and he'd also studied with Tartini in Padua, who was the great violin teacher of the day. Mm. Um, and he was well enough recognised that he taught the violin, so he in turn was a violin teacher, who taught the violin to Wilhelm Friedemann Bach, the eldest son of J.S. Bach. So there's an endorsement for
0: you. Yes, right? and, and as we will recall, um, uh, listeners, certainly, um, we've when we've talked about J.S. Bach and uh, and his uh, life and career as a musician was a prominent violinist himself so to let a particular person take over the education of his eldest son in violin well yeah, that that's quite a big deal. Yeah.
1: Um, so Johann Gottlieb, second son, gets a job in Mauseburg, the same place where his older brother is working. Right. So there, it's it's confusing already. And he worked there for five years, and then he got a job with the Crown Prince of Prussia, Frederick, who went on to be King Frederick II, uh, later known as Frederick the Great. So Johann Gottlieb gets his job with Frederick in 1732, and when Frederick becomes king, he's made director of the orchestra where. In he stays in that job for the rest of his life okay that brings us to the third son karl heinrich he's the composer of the uh, aria we're hearing on this program and like his brothers he went to school in dresden and university in leipzig um, just before j.s bach moved to leipzig in uh, 1723 Uh, but this karl heinrich the youngest brother was a singer ...and also a composer. So he wrote operas, cantatas and church music... Uh, ...and he did so in the modern Italian style... ...and that's why his music of course fits in so nicely... ...with uh, Handel writing in the Italian style. Um, he worked uh, first of all for the Duke of Brunswick, Wolfenbüttel, um, ...and then at the court of Guess Who... Frederick Second of Prussia, <laughs> right? So we have the two brothers uh, of similar background, similar training, um, one who is a violinist, the other a singer, and they both finish up working at the court of Frederick II uh, in Berlin and spend the rest of their careers there. So... Um, Karl Heinrich, the the singer who we're going to hear from today, um, was uh, involved in, of course, running the opera for Frederick II. And in fact, he was sent off to Italy to recruit singers in a similar way to the way Handel was trying Mm. to 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 recruit uh, singers for his company in London. Um, Karl Heinrich composed one or two operas a year throughout his, his time there. So we have over 30 operas that that he composed, uh, as well as some cantatas and concertos and chamber music and so forth. So uh, clearly a very uh, fine composer as, as his brother was.
0: Yes, and in my research I was uh, reading that actually a lot of his earlier output uh, was lost because he wasn't very keen on what he wrote as a youngster and, and apparently didn't even keep copies of his, his older music. So unfortunately there is a lot of his repertoire that has been, has been lost to time.
1: Yeah, and it's an important thing to remember that there's a huge amount of music really that, that has not survived um, mm. because hardly any of it was ever printed. Uh, it circulated only in manuscript. It was just not worth the expense of getting things printed because they were mostly for performance at a particular time and place by a particular set of musicians and once that occasion had gone it was only uh, really for the purposes of the composer keeping a kind of archival record of what they'd done and perhaps their employer particularly in a royal court or something like that they would keep an archival copy for the library yes but otherwise the music was generally not heard again for the most part Uh, so it's relatively rare that uh, that the music um, stayed in the repertoire in any way
0: but karl heinrich actually did have several works that continued and uh, essentially outlived him and his life as a a living musician, uh, didn't he? Uh, That's right, he did. And
1: uh, ironically, it was just for those couple of pieces that he was known um, for uh, after his own lifetime. Uh, And they were just two pieces that were printed uh, right at the end of his life in the last few years of his life. They were... uh, two um, sacred pieces, a Te Deum, a festive um, church piece, and uh, an oratorio uh, called De Torte Jesu, The Death of Jesus, so uh, an Easter uh, piece, obviously. And uh, both of those were printed by Breitkopf and Hertel, the famous um, publishing house, and so they were much more widely disseminated. Before that time, he was a very well-respected, highly regarded composer, but known essentially only within the Berlin uh, musical establishment. Mm. It's these two pieces that were published and therefore distributed all over Europe that really made him famous. And uh, particularly the Oratorio, The Death of Jesus, mm. continued in the repertoire then well into the 19th century and became a, a kind of German classic of yes. sacred
0: music. In fact, I was uh, when uh, reading, I came across the, the fact that it wasn't until the rediscovery of Bach's St. Matthew Passion that things tended to change because Graun's work was indeed the preeminent uh, work to be performed at Easter.
1: That's right. Yeah. And so the the, ba- the revival of of Bach's St. Matthew Passion is actually going back a generation earlier than the Grand Piece, which is from the 1750s. Mm. St. Matthew Passion is from the 1720s. Uh, and so it's a kind of revival of ancient music in a way when we go back to to then rediscovering Bach in yes. the 1830s.
0: Now very importantly, I think I do want to stress the point just how highly regarded Gron was uh, during his own lifetime, uh, and also posthumously. Uh, there are several wonderful illustrations that I've come across from the late 1700s. Now, Grawn, uh, he he died in the 1750s, but uh, these illustrations clearly attests to his reputation following his death. And the one that really struck my eye was a sun, a glorious sun-like image representing the most important German composers of the time, where names radiate and surround Johann Sebastian Bach's name, which is centered in the middle of a triangle at the heart of the sun. Now, everyone knows why Johann Sebastian Bach (laughs) has his name in the center of that triangle, Uh, but the three sides of the triangle are names that most audience members would be familiar with Joseph Haydn, George Friedrich Handel, and Karl Heinrich Graun. Now, lots of other prominent composers feature as rays of this sun diagram Mozart, Telemann, Gluck, uh, Kvantse. But what happened to the music of Karl-Henri Where yeah. Where is it? Why are we not hearing it as prominently as some of these other composers? Well, exactly, yeah. Um, and there is lots of fabulous music, of
1: course, which still remains to be discovered and, and recorded and so forth. Remember that um, we know Handel so well, primarily because he was the only composer of that generation whose music stayed continuously in the repertoire to mm. the present, when even J.S. Bach had been essentially forgotten until being revived by Mendelssohn in, in 1820. 1999, uh, Handel was continuing to be performed, but that was mostly because there was no other really prominent English musician to take his place after he died, so they kept playing his music. Mm. And especially Messiah, obviously, and, and some of the other oratorios stayed in the repertoire of choirs, and uh, as choral singing became a fashionable thing in the 19th century, they continued to perform them. So, in a sense, that's kind of an accident, and, and the reason that um, Handel was being revived in the, the 20th century, was largely as a result of that continuous tradition of the oratorio performances. And if you'd asked somebody even 30, 20 or 30 years ago, uh, name three pieces by Handel, it would have been Messiah, probably the water music and the fireworks music. Mm. Which So an oratorio, which was not actually part of his, his main um, – work of his career and two instrumental pieces which were just occasional pieces for one-off performances.
0: And potentially the coronation anthems because of course yeah. that, that is an event uh, steeped in history for, for many reasons. Yes, whenever somebody's crowned we get reminded
2: <laughs> of this but not so much
1: <laughs> in between. The point being though that d- during his career in London he thought of himself and he was known by his uh, his audience as an opera composer. That mm. was essentially what he did and these other things were, were relatively peripheral to that.
0: Now, in terms of occasions and uh, moments in time in history, Gron was was given a commission uh, that was essentially a very important commission for the opening of the Berlin State Opera, the original Berlin State Opera. Now, uh, it wasn't called by the, the same name at the time, but the uh, aria that we're going to hear Sarah MacLeaver sing in Australia for the first time, uh, Tra le Procele, comes from this same opera, Cesare e Cleopatra, uh, what an important commission. I mean, obviously opera and operatic productions were becoming more prominent in Germany uh, at this time. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about this event and, and why it would have been important for a composer like uh, Grant to be, uh, to be writing this music.
1: Yeah, this is a really big deal, the establishment of a new Royal Opera House in Berlin. Um, until this time, uh, there had been uh, Italian opera productions in Germany. It was becoming more and more a thing for the various... Uh, minor um, royal houses and principalities to have their own opera companies if they could afford it. But it was an enormously expensive undertaking to do. There was one public theatre in Hamburg, which was where ha- Handel had actually had his kind of training as a young man. But other than that, there were essentially some court theatres where the local aristocracy were willing to sink vast amounts of money into uh, running what was really a luxury um activity. Uh, And so um, for Frederick II of Prussia, it was a big deal to establish this new theatre. His father had been notoriously not interested in music and so forth, whereas Frederick was almost obsessively interested in music. And so as soon as he became king, he commissioned this new theatre to be built. Uh, It was built in the Palladian style. It looked like um, one of those beautiful. villas in Italy uh, and uh, commissioned in 1742 so for that Glaun wrote this opera um, for the for that special occasion so uh, Cesare Cleopatra Caesar and Cleopatra one of those those great ancient stories Um, and uh, the theatre I'd like to say the theatre is still there there's there's a theatre on the site but it's not the same one the theatre was opened in 1742 um, and but it had to be remodeled in 1788 to make it bigger and uh, to to create better exits and so forth. Uh, then it burnt down in 1843 and was rebuilt in a. In a more uh, up-to-date style with better wings and all of those things then it was remodeled in 1926 Uh, then in 1941 during the second world war it was bombed and immediately rebuilt on hitler's orders so it was finished in in 1942 uh, and uh, then it was bombed again in 1945 (laughs) towards the end of the war uh, and rebuilt finally in its current form in 1952 to, to 55 so it reopened in 1955 on the same site but actually essentially a completely different theatre from
0: the one that uh, was first built, was first built. Uh, I think it's fascinating to, to think not only of the music that comes down to us through various people and, and places but how these buildings also would have shaped uh, the history and essentially the music that came down to us now how does this particular aria that uh, I will play us a little bit actually it won't be with Sarah singing unfortunately because she will be performing an Australian premiere but how does this particular aria shape up against some of those that we're going to hear Sarah perform by Handel well, it's, uh, again, a, a storm aria. It's using that
1: simile of uh, I'm um, like a ship tossed on the sea and, and so forth. And so in uh, in a way it's similar to something like candles agitato da fiera tempesta and it's uh, very uh, virtuosic and exciting um, in that very kind of flashy modern Italian style of the period. Uh, and so in that way it's very uh, it, it measures up very well, with the handle,
0: um, mm. it's a very good piece and, uh, and it's in a very similar style. So this is regular Muleman performing with the La Folia Baroque Orchestra Tra le Procelli from Cesare e Cleopatra. Now we can really hear the storm brewing in the orchestra there. Sure can, yeah.
1: That's what makes it so exciting, of course, so the kind of driving rhythm and the the harmony that that rushes forward like the the raging wind, uh, and the virtuosity of the singing is quite astonishing, of course. Uh, you might have noticed in there that there's a kind of repeated note figure, the da 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 on yep. the same note, very very difficult to do, particularly at speed and up high in uh, in the voice. And so this is one of those kind of markers where a singer can go, look, I can do this. Nobody else can do this. Yes, uh, it was a specialty of Fuss. Bordoni for example who uh, was one of the things that she was her kind of calling card almost mm. uh, as, a, as a famous singer um, and so in a way I think for a royal court like Frederick's employing these people was partly because uh, the music was extraordinary and exciting and so forth and it's almost like they are, they are sort of luxury goods you know it's like having a fabulously gilded uh, picture frame or a, a painting mm. by a famous painter
0: um, it uh, is having something that nobody else can have and indeed we've probably mentioned it on the podcast before but repeated notes have a very clear intention in a lot of baroque music and it's building tension and that's what it's all about you see it in bass lines you see it in essentially melodies at uh, the the idea of a repeated note but in this fabulous fashion is definitely very clear and as you said a very difficult thing to sing
1: that's right yeah and the words here are um uh, in the middle of a storm, a passenger is lost. It's not the fault of the helmsman, but only the wind and the sea. And so we can hear the kind of raging of the, the wind and all of that. Uh, and that feeling of kind of trembling that um, before the, the terror of the, the storm um, yes. is, is one of the things that can be captured by that figure.
0: Well, it's been fabulous speaking with you today, Alan, and thank you for enlightening us about Carl Heinrich Graun and uh, his place in the in the great scheme of opera as we know it today.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful when we. Uh get to know some composers who uh, were really really good and who we have not heard too much of today people sometimes complain you know you can go to to concerts and uh, every time you go to the opera it seems to be la traviata and you know if you go to a baroque concert uh, uh, can you i don't think you can ever get sick of the Brandenburg concertos or (laughs) some (laughs) of these other great works but in fact there is still a whole lot of wonderful music out there that um we're still discovering and kauhan is certainly one of those composers who it's wonderful to get to know better
0: and thank you for joining us. This has been Tales of Baroque with Dr. Alan Maddox, a Senior Lecturer in Musicology of the University of Sydney Conservatory of Music and your host, Hugh Ronzani from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra.